Good morning. It's good to be back. Missed you guys, just so you know that. Uh, and Happy New Year. Are you tired of hearing Happy New Year? Good. Because I didn't get a chance to tell you, so. I would love to tell you that I'm 100% better. I'm not, so I'm going to do the best I can here. Uh, hopefully I won't go into a coughing fit. I'm hearing coughing. Don't influence me, please. And, um, but, uh, hey, what are you looking forward to in 2018? Can you, can, can you, even just saying 2018 just sounds so, so crazy. I'll take one of those up here, Fred, if that's okay. Thank you very much, just in case. I just don't want to, if I start coughing, this will help a little bit. <coughs> um, yeah, what are you looking forward to in, in 2018? I mean, this is a, this is, I, I don't think I would have ever thought of saying 2018. It just feels weird even saying it, doesn't it? I mean, it's just, wow. It's just crazy. Um, in Roman mythology, there was this, uh, this god who was the guardian of the doorways. And he had two faces on his head and could look backward and forward. How cool is that? Don't you wish sometimes you could have that? Look backward and forward simultaneously, right? He was the, in Roman mythology, the patron saints, uh, uh, patron saints excuse me, of beginning and endings. And in 46 B.C., the Roman emperor Julius Caesar introduced a new calendar and gave the first month of the, in the year to this god named Janus. And so therefore we have January, right? Janus, or Janus's month, has always been a time of endings and beginnings, of making fresh starts and a clean slate, you know, the whole idea. And with the arrival of this new year, the beginning of January is... For most people, a time for what we call New Year's what? Resolutions. Has anyone here made any New Year's resolutions? And we've become so cynical that we're like, you know, I, I'm so sick of making these and breaking these that I, I'm not making anymore. Anybody in that camp? <laughs> Anybody in the camp of I made my new resolution was never to raise my hand in church again? That was, that was my New Year's resolution. Recent statistics say that of the 60 to 65 percent, which was not even that many that raised their hands in here, of people who make New Year's resolutions, 75 percent are able to keep their resolutions past the first week. <laughs> By the second week, the second week, 51% of people have not yet broken their resolutions. By the time February comes around, only 34% of people that have made their resolutions keep their resolutions. And only 8%, only 8% of people keep their resolutions for six months or more. Think about that for a second. So if you raise your hand, you have about an 8% chance that it's going to work. Why are resolutions so elusive? 
Why are resolutions so difficult? When it came to New Year's resolutions, the Apostle Paul apparently never kept one past January or February too. Listen to him telling his story in the letters to Romans, Chris, if you're here. This is, this is for you. And I'm actually going to put it up from the uh, Message Bible. And listen to what he says. And, and, and if you've read this passage before from other uh, uh, translations, you know this is a very difficult passage to keep up with and read. But I, I like the way the message puts it. It makes it a little easier. And this is right from the mouth of Paul. He says, I realize that I don't have what it takes. Everybody, in, anybody here in February felt this way? Like, I, I, I did, I, I made the resolution, but here I am breaking it, right? I realize that I don't, some of you, it's like January 2nd, right? Like, how could this be? I made it yesterday, right? I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. Anybody relate? My decisions, such as they are, don't result in action. Something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it is predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel. And just when I least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything. And nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there anyone who can do anything for me? Is, isn't that the real question? Have you ever felt this way? That the, the, the broken promises just kind of begin to deteriorate your resolutions more and more and more so that some of you don't even make resolutions anymore. It's like, why bother? Some of you are just against the whole January 1st thing, I guess, you know. If I'm going to make a resolution, it's going to be March 3. Yeah, that's it, you know. (laughs) And then he says the answer thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. See, there's just something about resolving to be dependent on God. Huh? And maybe that's the problem with New Year's resolutions, is that they always have to do with what I can do. And maybe God is trying to tell us something. And I feel bad for the 8%, to be honest with you. Because the 8% may never realize that the only true victories come from our dependence on God. 
The 8% will never experience what it feels like to say, God, you're in charge of my life, not me. See, Paul is no loser, by the way. This is the one who probably was more an expert on changing lives than anybody who ever lived on earth. Isn't that true? If you want to know about change, you may want to hear what Paul has to say. Like if you want to hear about cooking, you would ask Julia Child, right? If you want to know about basketball, maybe you would call Michael Jordan. If you want to talk about amassing wealth, maybe you would talk to Bill Gates. But if you want to talk about change, the Apostle Paul is the Michael Jordan, the Julia Child, and the Bill Gates of change. If you want to talk about change, a transformed life, that's the guy you want to talk to because he was the tent maker from Tarsus that was self-satisfied as a Pharisee doing his best to wipe the infant church off the face of the earth who was converted to Christianity. Let's be honest, he was the original Paul Newman, right? Here's the guy that became Paul from being Saul. He knows everything about change. So why does he tell us about what's going on in Romans? Why does he say to us, I, I don't know what's going on. I can't make these changes. Because he's trying to tell us that the only change, and even on the way to Tarsus he realizes this, the only change can only come through Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul will tell you that there must be something more than just sheer willpower. Than simply trying hard that would make people grow and change. And as I plan for this new year, as you plan for this new year, I want to know, what would the Apostle Paul advise me? I think one of the things that he would say is, and I love this, he, in one passage he says, for the love of God, or the love of Christ, compels me. And so maybe... Maybe I shouldn't be working on trying to get something done, but maybe I should be working on falling in love with Jesus. Because the love of Jesus can compel me to do stuff that maybe I could never do without that love. In fact, I think Jesus said, without me you can do nothing. I'm amazed how many people think, going around thinking that they're doing something. But they are without Jesus. Paul would say, brothers, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, one thing I do, I forget what is behind. So maybe, maybe part of it is to just forget what's behind. Don't let those failures paralyze you. I will tell you, for me, that's what happens. You know, I'll, I'll make a decision to, to lose, you know, 50 pounds, you know, and and then I think about all the times that I made that decision and didn't do it. And it just paralyzes me. So I, I think I'm going to listen to Paul and say, I'm going to forget what is behind. And then he says, straining toward what is ahead. Press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And maybe that's what I need. I need to just press forward. Maybe I, I don't have to be paralyzed by what my failures are, but maybe I should just keep looking forward to and celebrating the moments, even the shortest, the smallest victories that God gives me. 
And I'm hoping that this year all of us would do that. I believe we would be much more successful in all of our resolutions, in all of our endeavors, all of our goals, if we really just accepted this one advice. Forget what's behind. Move forward. Keep your eyes on Jesus. In Acts chapter 20, um, eh, I won't go there yet. In Acts chapter 20, Paul says these words. And see now, I go bound, bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing, I go bound, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. See, at this point, Paul is saying goodbye to a few really good friends, dear friends. He's, a, he's on an Asian beach, and he's not even sure he's ever going to see them again. Several of the men are weeping freely. They have built a bond together. They're they, they love each other. They're growing together. And, and he is saying goodbye, knowing that there's a possibility they may never see each other again. And here is this aging apostle holding each eye as he's looking, making sure that he never forgets the face. And then he looks out to the stormy sea, and he says, I am going to Jerusalem. I am drawn irresistibly by the Holy Spirit, but I am going not knowing. And maybe part of what we need to do in January is to say, God, I don't know what you have for me, but whatever it is, I'm in. I'm willing to go not knowing. Maybe the problem is we make too many resolutions. Maybe the problem is we have too many goals. And maybe we need to say, God, look, I, I am, I'm going to make these plans. I'm going to make these goals. But whatever it is that you're going to do, whatever doors you're going to open, whatever windows you're going to close, I'm in. Because I want you in my life. And, and maybe the problem is that we just love to control our lives to the point where we don't allow Jesus in. Going, not knowing. This statement recurs through Scripture like a repeating telegraph. Going, not knowing. Over and over again. So the more I travel the Christian walk, the more I'm convinced that I'm going not knowing more than I realize that I'm going not knowing. The Apostle Paul would also call it faith by sight. No, excuse me, uh, faith living by faith, not by sight. Have you done that? We used to do this uh, project. Uh, in my leadership classes, they would sign up. They don't have to do this, but they would sign up. They would all have to be blindfolded <clears throat> from uh, the moment they got up to the moment they got to my class that day, which was usually at 6 o'clock in the evening. <coughs> and they're like, well, well, hold on. Does that mean I have to take a shower blindfolded? Yeah. Uh, how am I going to brush my teeth? Excuse me. The whole day, 
And then they would come into my class bruised and bleeding. No, I'm kidding. But with stories. (coughs) (coughs) Excuse me. It was much worse last week, by the way. With stories of how uh, some kids were so cruel, spun them around and left them in the middle of the field, you know, that kind of stuff. But not one of them, I've done this for so many years, not one of them ever said, that was the stupidest project I was ever in. They all said, what an experience. And the kids that didn't do it, because they were not forced to do it, all sat there and said, man, I wish I could have done it. Try it someday. You know, put on a blindfold. Tell your boss, I'm doing a project. Sorry. And see what it's like for a day, just one day, that's all we're saying, to walk around blindfolded, to try to do your job blindfolded. walk by faith and not by sight. When was the last time that you moved forward going, not knowing? When was the last time that you were willing to embrace uncertainty? I, uh, when I was younger and skinnier and fitter, uh, my friends and I decided that we were going to climb Mount Manatnak in New Hampshire. You guys, you guys are familiar with, have you ever done this one? Uh, have you ever climbed this one? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a smaller mountain, right? It only takes about two and a half hours to go up and two and a half hours down. It's only about 4,000 feet up, I mean, you know, straight up, and uh but I had never done anything like this before. So I remember just saying, hey, let's do this. I was with some friends. I was young. I was limber. You know, I was ready to go. And, and we, we, none of them, most of them were from New York. So none of them had ever done anything like this before. Our pastor was there. That was kind of cool. He was from New Hampshire. So I'm like, all right, let's do it. So we're doing this. And I, I, I remember about 10 minutes in beginning to feel like, I think I've packed too much in my backpack. (laughs) And actually thinking, what if I left this here? Would it be back when I came back down? You know, would it still be there? That kind of a stuff, you know? And uh, and after after a while, you know, we would be climbing, and we would see what seemed like, oh, that's the top. And we would climb, and we'd get to there, and it'd be like, no, no, that's not the top. There's more top to this top. And so then we would climb that top. Get to that. You know what I'm talking about, right, Chris? And be like, no, that's not the top, you know? And it got colder. And you're just sitting there going, why would anybody do this? What is wrong with us? At one point, my friend Tony, I'm, I'm at the ledge looking over, making believe I'm just uh, taking in the a beautiful senior, but I was actually taking a breath is what I was really doing. And all of a sudden, I feel him push me and then grab me. And he's like, ha ha, wasn't that funny? No. <laughs> you know? It's like, what, what would make you think that that's even something that I would want? And I remember thinking about, you know, I need to choose my, 
my friends that I climb with a little better. You know, maybe people that know what they're doing, right? Four hours. The air was thinning, got colder. Finally got to the top, though. There was snow on top. I wasn't ready for that. But I remember going to the top and just feeling like, yes. Looking over to the right, treetops. To the left was Mount Everest. That's, <laughs> that's the way it felt, you know what I mean? It's like, wow, this is huge. I mean, it was just gorgeous. This, this, that's the mountain right there. And it was amazing. And I was so glad when I got up there that I did it. And in fact, I didn't want to come down. I wanted to stay up there. I remember going to one small little ledge that by myself and just prayed and said, God, I think physically this might be the closest I might ever be to you because I'm not climbing anything higher. <laughs> but thank you for this beauty. And it was just so much fun to do that. So I think there's some obstacles that cause us to not move like we should be moving. And um, I want to put this little thing here. And, th and this basically, the first obstacle is fear. And, and just so you know, right now what I'm defining fear as, as, as the absence of trust. Because when we don't trust God, we are afraid, aren't we? You know, when I was a little boy, I was never afraid when my dad was around. Why? Because dad's around. I trusted him. <clears throat> when I'm at, on the ledge of a swimming pool, and he would say to me, jump. Put his eye out. There was never a moment that I thought, yeah, he's not going to catch me. Never. He would always catch me. But if I thought he didn't, I would be afraid, right? So fear breeds inactivity, and inactivity leads to lack of experience, and lack of experience leads to ignorance, which does what? Leads back to fear. I think one of the greatest things that we need to do is to, and again, I'm circling back around to this one concept, and that is we must trust Jesus. We must trust Jesus with our lives. We must trust Jesus with everything that's going on, every innuendo, any, any, any part at all, anything at all. And every nuance of our lives must be totally relying on Jesus. The second thing is satisfaction. Just two things, fear and satisfaction. You know, if you're hungry, if you're satisfied, you're not hungry anymore. Mom was a great cook. And she taught us well. And some of you know that I will not touch anything that's dessert-like until I've had my food first. Because my mom instilled it in me, man. You eat that, it's going to ruin your what? Appetite. 
I mean, some of us have ruined appetites for the Word of God. We're satisfied, and I think we live in, the, in a country that, that can make it, that, that's really easy to do, right? I was reading about uh, Shackleton. I love, I love this little, uh, this was actually the ad he put in the paper. It says, men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success, Ernest Shackleton. <laughs> Come on to the Arctic with me. You're going to love it, really. And I think he was smart, actually, because what he's actually saying is, look, if this doesn't appeal to you, you shouldn't come, because <laughs> that's what I'm looking for. In the Arctic, summer of 1908-1909, Sir Ernest Shackleton and three companions attempted to travel to the South Pole from their winter quarters. They went back several times later. They set off with four ponies to help carry the load. And weeks later, their ponies dead, their rations all but exhausted, they turned back toward their base. Their goal was not accomplished. Altogether, they tracked 27, 100, excuse me, 127 days. 127 days in the Arctic. Think about it. On the return journey, as Shackleton records in the heart of the Antarctic, the time was spent talking about only one thing on the return journey. You know what they were talking about? Food. Elaborate feasts, gourmet delights, sumptuous menus. He writes that as, the stagger, as they staggered along, suffering from dysentery, not knowing whether they would survive, every waking hour was occupied with thoughts of feasting. You know what's interesting about hunger like that? Have you ever fasted? When I go a long time without eating, I never dream about eating beets or spinach. Isn't that true, right? When you get that hungry, I dream of gnocchi. I dream of pizza. You know, I dream of my mom's cooking. I'm, I'm, I, that's, that's what you dream of, right? And maybe what we need is to experience that level of hunger for God. I think that's what Jesus meant when he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That's what he was talking about. He's not talking about just being, I think I'm hungry. No, he's talking about the kind of hunger that you just, you cannot help but say, man, I need righteousness. I need to be filled with God. And here's the question I keep asking myself, and I want to ask you today. What are you settling for? What is satisfying you? 
Do you have a voracious appetite for a deep, satisfying, consistent experience with God in 2018? Or will you settle for, once again, disappointing, sporadic fast food served on a platter, devotions that someone else caught, someone else cooked? Are you going to do it for yourself? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, it says these words. I, I love this. I love the way uh, the message puts it. It says, when Jesus saw his ministry drawing huge crowds, he climbed a hillside. He climbed the hillside, and those who were apprenticed to him, his disciples, catch this, don't miss this, those who were apprenticed to him, the committed ones, not everybody, just the committed ones climbed with him. And arriving at a quiet place, the committed ones and Jesus only, he sat down and taught his climbing companions. How cool is that? In other words, the only ones that got to hear this great sermon called the Sermon on the Mount the only ones that really got to absorb the full aspects of the uh, Beatitudes live. Luckily, somebody wrote them. Matthew, thank you. Were his climbing companions. I don't know about you, but I want to be Jesus' climbing companion. Don't you? I mean, the greatest sermon ever preached, most people never even heard that day. Only those that were willing and committed enough to climb. The rest are still in the valley. Because, let's be honest, it takes a lot of effort to climb a mountain. Things get heavier, the air gets thinner, it gets colder. It takes time. Many are like, let's just sit here and rest. He'll be back down. He's, what goes up? What? Must come down. Sooner or later, Jesus will be here. Let's catch him on the way down. How many of you, how many times have you tried to catch God on the way down? And you didn't take advantage of God up on a mountain. How far up the mountain are you willing to climb? The Sermon on the Mount is going to be, or at least the Beatitudes, is going to be uh, the topic for the next few weeks. Is that okay? Would you guys like to, to kind of be in on this great talk that Jesus gave? This blueprint detailing the distinguishing traits between true believers and pretenders? The Beatitudes... Reveal the secret passage that goes from mere existing to abundant living. Living small to living large. The Beatitudes profile the differences between those who are more concerned with who they are than those who are concerned with how they look. From those who are obsessed with others' opinions. The Beatitudes separates those who merely look like believers 
from those who truly are believers. The whole sermon ends with this secret passageway. I love this. The end of the sermon, Jesus says this. Look, when it all comes down to it, this is it. Seek first, what? His kingdom or the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. It's as if he was saying, look, just this is, this is simple. What is it that causes us to seek everything else first? And then maybe at the end, you know how many times I've, I've heard people say, okay, I'm ready to retire, and I'm ready to be more active in church. Hello. You're catching God on the way down. Now, God, your, your greatest fulfillment, your greatest joy is going to be experiencing God on the pinnacle, on top, climbing with him. The fundamental question that everyone who reads the Sermon on the Mount is faced with is, whose approval will you seek, God's or man's? Why are you in church today? I mean, some of you, let's be honest, some of you are in church because this is what you do on Saturday. And it would feel weird not to come to church. Some of you are in church because you were forced to come to church. By mom or dad or husband, wife, to be or wife. Some of you are in church because you came to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I want to tell you something, God's going to honor that. In the next few weeks, we're going to look at the Beatitudes, these life-changing principles that will cause us to experience Christianity radically. Are you in? Do you really want to be used by God to the fullest to experience the abundant life that the Beatitudes talk about? Do you want to see God who can do what God can do with people that are fully devoted to him or fully willing to say, look, I'm willing to go, not knowing. I'm willing to do whatever it is that you want me to do, not what I want to do, what you want me to do. Are you tired of playing church and sitting in pews? Uh, are some of you really willing to say, look, I, I want to do, this has got to be more than this. There's got to be more than this. What do you think? Do you think there is more than this? There's, I don't think this was what Jesus had in mind. When he built his church upon the rock. I mean, this is good. Don't, don't misunderstand the importance of community. I'm not saying that, but this can't just be it. There's got to be more, No. Well, if you are that way, then this series is for you. Looking forward to the next few weeks. I want to say this to you. Some of you, this year, are going to lose your pastor. I'm not taking a call anywhere. That's not what I'm talking about. I've purposed in my heart this year, like never before, to be one of Christ's climbing, climbing companions. And I'm hoping that you'll climb with me. If you don't, you're going to be like, where is he? 
What's wrong with him? My real hope is that all of us will climb together. How cool would that be? Together. Helping each other. Just keeping each other warm and encouraging each other and everything that Proverbs says, right? Having each other's backs. I can't force you. I can't even guarantee you won't stumble or fall. I've been climbing for a while, and I've failed. I've failed a thousand times. But as the song that we're about to sing says, still God's mercy remains. And should I stumble again, I know I am caught in his grace. His light will shine when all us fades. His glory goes beyond all fame. He will, above all else, my purpose remain in the art of losing myself in bringing him praise. I can't force you. I can't guarantee you won't stumble or fall, but here's what I promise. It will be a higher, deeper, broader peak experience. So are you willing to climb with me? Amen.